And I used to tell my mom, oh, we're having peas again for dinner? I hate peas. And my mom would say, but Jennifer, peas love you. Oh, it made me so mad. (laughs) Well, that's a silly story. But what Paul is talking about today here in our passage of Romans is hate. That's one of the things that we're going to talk about. So I wanted to read you um, a little part of our scripture, and this is from the message. And so here's what it says. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I will do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy him lunch. Or if she's thirsty, give her a drink. Your generosity will surprise that person. Don't let evil get the best of you, but get the best of evil by doing good. So that's our passage for today. Now, I want to tell you a little story, and it's about a boy and We're not going to use his real name. We're just going to call him Jonathan. And so he is one one of the uh, boys pictured here. And this is a picture from part of um, the youth group that I served with when I was in college. Um, I worked at a church and uh, I worked with the youth, which is teenagers. And uh, it was a couple years. I was probably there with them for about three years. And one of the things that we did um, at the end of our time was to take a mission trip together. Now, this kid, again, I'm not going to tell you which one he was, but this kid, we're calling him Jonathan, he was such a pest. He was always getting into trouble. He was always doing something wrong. He was always getting on our last nerve. He was difficult. (laughs) So we went on this mission trip and Jonathan decided to go with us. And I thought, oh no, this trip is going to be a disaster. Well, we went on this trip and he was his usual self the whole time. He got into pranks. He annoyed people. He uh, made silly jokes, um, told stories that were inappropriate, all kinds of things. And we're like, this kid, what's the matter with him? So finally, the last night, we're so fed up with him, okay? We're so angry with him. This kid is just terrible. He's just terrible. And so the speaker is speaking, and they're telling a story. And then they share the gospel with all of the kids there. And all of a sudden, I look over, and Jonathan is crying. And not just a little tear, but a big tear and then another big tear and then all of a sudden he's weeping he can't control it god had moved in his heart to be, to help him to become a christian he had shown jonathan the good news about jesus and jonathan realized that he needed to change his ways so he jonathan came up to me at the end of that night and he said jennifer i am so sorry that i was such a pest i am so sorry that i was so annoying to you thank you for being patient with me all this time god used that to show me how he is so patient with me too so that's a reminder 
we may have people in our lives that we don't like and they may be a real pest and we may get really angry we may even think or feel that we hate them but god says keep being patient keep being good keep being kind and over time that kindness will overcome their badness does that make sense god's goodness is bigger than a person's badness. And when you are just at the end of your rope and you say, I don't have it in me anymore. I'm all out of patience. Ask God. He delights to give us what we need to do what he's asked us to do. So if you need it, ask him. Don't be shy. Um, and he will give you what you need to love others well in Jesus' name. All right, kids, I'm about to come up and do the big sermon. See you again in just a second. All righty. Well, I'm just going to leap right in to our scripture passage for today, which is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. It'll be up on the screens where you can follow along if you brought the old school Bible. So it says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. God, we invite you to speak to us right now. As we look outside and we see the rain, we are reminded that our hearts can get dry. We can get callous and hard. And so we just invite you to send your grace, to rain your grace down upon us this morning, that you would tenderize our hearts with your word. Uh, Lord, we need your spirit to make this word living and active. You know that I have no words that can bring about any change in any human heart. Only you can do that. And so we invite you and your spirit to come speak to us, to come change us from the inside out, to help us to be the people of Christ for a watching world. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, our passage for today begins with a topic that many American Christians will never experience personally. Rarely have any of us seen, much less experienced, real Life or death stakes persecution for our faith. But in first century Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, persecution was a stark reality for those who chose to follow Christ. A few years ago, I watched the movie Silence at the recommendation of a friend. The movie tells the story of two 17th century Jesuit priests who travel from their home country of Portugal to Japan in hopes of finding another priest who had gone missing there years before. This priest has supposedly renounced his faith and was now living as the Japanese, godless and secular. The Portuguese priests simply could not believe or accept this news. 
This man had been their friend and their mentor, and they respected him deeply. So they began the long journey from Portugal to Japan to try to find answers. They wanted to find the truth. These priests entered Japan during a time of intense persecution. They came ashore in a small unknown village and soon found that there were underground Christians, Japanese Christians who worshipped secretly by night so as to avoid persecution and even death at the hands of the government officials who were trying to uproot any last vestiges of Christianity in the country. When word got out that there were once again Catholic priests in the country, the officials came looking. One priest was killed and the other was eventually found and captured by the lead inquisitor. This poor priest was made to watch his fellow Christians savagely taunted, tortured, and even killed. The men who tortured him knew that he could withstand any physical torture that they could put him through. In fact, they knew that the only thing that could possibly make this tender shepherd renounce Jesus was to see these, his Japanese brothers and sisters, persecuted and killed because of him. To see them tortured mercilessly until he apostatized. Well, I'm not going to tell you the ending of the movie. You're going to have to go watch it yourself. But the movie leaves us with more questions than answers. It's really unsettling. Where was God during this persecution? Where was he when men, women, and even children were being burned alive, drowned, or even beheaded for his sake? God himself promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. So why then does it sometimes feel like he does? Why did this priest feel abandoned by God? And where is God in the midst of our pain and suffering? Well, the Roman Christians were asking these very same questions. As they saw their Christian brothers and sisters put to death or even made to be spectacles in the Roman Colosseum, they were simultaneously reading the opening words of our very next chapter, Romans 13. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Even when those authorities are corrupt, even when they mock God, Even when they persecute and kill God's children? Yes, even then. Paul was speaking directly into this tender situation, into the raw pain of his children who were suffering unjustly at the hands of godless men and governments. The ancient theologian Tertullian famously said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And while God has clearly and beautifully used the persecution of his people to spread the gospel and reveal the very heart of his son, we're still left with this seemingly impossible command. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So Paul begins this section of scripture in verse 9 with these words, Let your love be genuine. He moves from talking about genuine love to then talking about religious persecution. These thoughts may seem unconnected, but they're actually essential to each other. You see, love always costs us something. We cannot love for free. 
God's own love for us cost him the ultimate price, the life of his very own son. Likewise, to truly love others the way that God asks us to, the way that he does, we must give our persecutors what they don't deserve, while they don't deserve it, precisely because they don't deserve it. The priest in the movie I just told you about was constantly asking himself three questions. What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? And what will I do for Christ? But how in the world do we love people that are so utterly unlovable? To answer this question, we must return to the very beginning of this chapter. In verse 1, Paul urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. This, he says, is our spiritual act of worship. What do you think would happen if we began to think of extending grace or undeserved kindness as an act of worship. When that rude driver cuts you off and then has the nerve to flip you off on top of it and you both end up next to each other at the stoplight a couple seconds later, how can you worship God in your response? How can you present your body, your tongue, your hand gestures as a living sacrifice to God in that moment? Or what about when someone says something wild, wacky, or even offensive on social media? I'm sure that's never happened. But theoretically, how could you worship God in that, in that moment, in your response? What does genuine love look like in a Facebook comment? How is God asking you to be a living sacrifice? It will cost you something, to be sure. Perhaps that clever comeback or the chance to be right. But this is part of living in harmony. Learning to adapt the notes that we play to make beauty from the notes that are around us. This, Paul says, is your spiritual act of worship. It's like seeing life as jazz, which is constant improvisation. It requires us to listen and to adapt to figure out which love note is right in each situation. But when it comes together, it is so beautiful to witness. Now, harmony is not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of love. As the body body of Christ, we should be so tightly knit together that when you hurt, I hurt too. When you are celebrating something, I also feel joy. Today is Mother's Day, which is the perfect illustration for Paul's teaching here. There are some in our midst for whom this day is a sweet reminder, full of blessing, love, and celebration. But there are some among us for whom this day is a painful reminder of loss, sadness, and mourning. As the body of Christ, we should be so tightly knit together that we can both rejoice with those for whom this day is so special and weep with those for whom this day is so painful. There's a beautiful story told of Ludwig von Beethoven, who upon hearing of the death of someone close to him, went to the deceased's home. Not having any of his own words for the widow, he just sat down at the piano and he played for hours and hours. 
When he was finished, he just stood up and left. The widow said afterwards that the music gave her more solace than all the words, all the messages, all the food that people brought, everything else that people did. It gave her more solace. Beethoven was mourning with his friend, feeling her pain, using his God-given gifts to show love. It wasn't complicated, but it did cost him something. Now, we read earlier in Romans where Paul uses the image of a human body to describe how the family of God works. A foot cannot do a hand's job, and a hand can't replace an ear, obviously. Beethoven, in the story I just told, was using his gifts to offer comfort. He mourned with the widow, not for her. This is what love looks like. It is with Love that suffers through persecution. Love that blesses when it wants to curse. Love that pursues harmony. Love that is humble. Love that extends grace where it's not deserved. As you probably know, one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. I don't think that's an accident. In my early 20s, I lived in East Asia for two years. I spent my days sharing the gospel with college students. And I was always there. I lived there. I studied there. I ate there. I slept there. You never got a break. It was really hard sometimes. And it was uncomfortable. There was one time where I could not get a full night's sleep for a week straight because a rooster moved in across the street. And let me tell you, it is a myth that roosters only crow when the sun comes up. They crow in the morning, they crow in the afternoon, they crow in the evening, and at all times in between. (laughs) I tell you what, there were times like these where I found it very difficult to love. I clearly remember looking out my window and shaking my fist at that rooster and wishing that I could throw a rock at him. That's in me? Oh my goodness, they're, they're, I'll tell you what, sleep deprivation will reveal what's really in your heart. But that was in me. That was in me. That anger was in me. And it wasn't pretty. But I could not get away from this passage. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Man, doesn't Paul always go straight for our heart? I want, I want to say to him, come on, man, let up a little bit. Don't you understand that I'm getting no sleep? This is crazy. But nope, he doesn't let up. In fact, he keeps going. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, why did he have to go and tug on my heartstrings by calling me beloved? Doesn't Paul understand this predicament I'm in? Apparently not, because he keeps going further. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Okay, great. Now can I not only not throw this rock at the rooster, but now I'm supposed to invite him over for dinner too? I love this sweet story of a family who were new Christians and reading the Bible together for the very first time. They ran across our passage in Romans, and especially this verse, Romans 12:20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. So the mother tells the story of what happened. Our sons, 7 and 10 at the time, were especially puzzled by this verse. Why should you feed your enemy? They wondered. 
My husband and I wonder too. But the only answer my husband could think to give the boys was, because God said so. We're supposed to do what God says to do. It never occurred to us that we would soon learn why. Day after day, my son John came home from school complaining about a classmate who sat behind him in the fifth grade. Bob keeps jabbing me when Miss Smith isn't looking, he would say. One of these days, when we're out on the playground, I'm just going to jab him back. Now, I, as the mom, was ready to go down to the school, and I was ready to jab Bob myself. Obviously, that boy was a brat. And besides, why wasn't Miss Smith doing a better job managing the classroom? I'd better give her a verbal jab while I'm at it. I was still fuming over this injustice to my son when his seven-year-old brother spoke up. Maybe he should feed his enemy. Oh, the three of us were startled. None of us were sure about this enemy business. It didn't seem like you would have an enemy in the fifth grade. And an enemy was something way off. Well, somewhere. We all looked to my husband for the answer. But the only answer he could offer was the same one he'd given before. I guess we should because God said so. Well, I asked my son, do you know what Bob likes to eat? Jelly beans, he almost shouted. Bob just loves jelly beans. So we bought a bag of jelly beans for him to take to school the next day and decided that the next time Bob jabbed him, he would simply turn around and deposit the bag on his enemy's desk. We would see whether or not this enemy feeding really worked. So the next afternoon, the boys rushed home from the school bus, and John called ahead, It worked, Mom! It really worked! Well, I wanted all the details. What did Bob do? What did he say? He was so surprised that he didn't say anything. He just took the jelly beans. But he didn't jab me for the rest of the day. In time, John and Bob became the best of friends, all because of a little bag of jelly beans. Both of our sons subsequently became missionaries on foreign fields. Their way of showing friendship with any enemies of the faith was to invite the inhabitants of those countries into their homes to share food with them around their own tables. It seems that enemies are always hungry. Maybe that is why God said to feed them. Well, isn't that a great story? But it's convicting too, right? We can often think of an enemy as someone that you just find on the soap opera or on an episode of Dateline. But the word in Greek means something a little closer to home. It means someone who is opposed to you. That makes it real, right? You know that neighbor that's getting on your very last nerve? Perhaps it's time to invite him to dinner. Or that coworker that just seems to have it out for you. Maybe you need to bring her some flowers. In his commentary on the book of Romans, Kent Hughes explains that our Arabic brothers and sisters have a beautiful custom that demonstrates this radical way of thinking. They touch their head, lips, and heart, indicating, I think highly of you, I speak well of you, my heart beats for you. What if we adopted this attitude towards those who are difficult or towards those who are different or even those who consciously do us harm? 
What if we chose not to be reactively defensive, but rather chose to be proactively full of God's love, forgiveness, and grace? At the beginning of the movie I alluded to earlier, the priests go first to China before Japan to seek out a suitable guide to help them in their quest. The qualified guide they're presented with is a degenerate man living in filth and squalor, but he was all they had. As they approach the Japanese shore in their little boat, one priest simply looks at the other and says, we have trusted this man with our lives. And the other replies, Jesus trusted worse. So here's where we wrap up this chapter. Paul warns his brothers and sisters not to seek revenge, encouraging them instead to leave the wrongs done to us to God's wisdom and justice. Paul knows something here that we don't. Revenge is the snowball that always becomes an avalanche. I'm going to say that one more time. Revenge is the snowball that always becomes an avalanche. Philip Yancey explains it this way. Vengeance is a passion to get even. It is a hot desire to give back as much as it was given to you. The problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. Both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded. And the escalator never stops and never lets anyone off. So what is the answer? Again, our answer is simply love. We are to love those inside of the church so deeply that we feel what they feel. And we are to love those outside of the church so deeply that they can feel the heartbeat of God through us. One commentary puts it this way. Love in the church and the world go together. Our minds have been renewed. Our lives have been transformed. And the Holy Spirit can do this through us. So what about you? Are you loving the church well? Are you loving the world well? I'm reminded of those haunting questions of the Portuguese priest. What have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? But I'm going to adapt them here for this passage. How have I loved others for Christ? How am I loving others for Christ? And how will I love others for Christ? So here's your challenge for this week. Don't go to sleep just yet. Pair up with another person, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, a relative, and I want you to send them a daily text, email, or phone call asking those three questions. How have I loved others for Christ? How am I loving others for Christ? And how will I love others for Christ? And then get together at the end of the week, go to dinner, invite them over, talk about your experiences. What has God done in your midst? How have you seen him move? What is he changing in you? And what do you need to ask him to change in you to help you to love others better, both inside and outside of his family? 
I'll close with the famous words of the martyr and missionary Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May God himself give us the grace that we need to live in true harmony with each other. And as we do, may his kingdom come and his will be done, that we ourselves would be a taste of heaven to those who are most hungry for it. Amen.